0: Flat Out whānau, you're with Laddie H, host of Flat Out Pride on your Free FM dial. If you're a Waikato local with an idea for your own show, Free FM would love to hear from you. Check out our website, freefm.org.nz, or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch.
1: Trailer for sale or rent Rooms to let 50 cents No phone, no pool, no pets I Ain't got no cigarettes i two hours of pushing broom Fies 8-bit, 12-4-bit broom I'm a man of means by no means King of the road Box Count
0: Historic Souvenirs presents a cyclist's intrepid journeys adapted from his book Pedal Power. Roy Sinclair wrote 12 books based on life lived to the full. A career extending from the National Film Unit to part-time as Christchurch Heritage tram driver to photojournalist with
1: the press. Short but not too big around I'm a man of me. By no means King of the road I know every engineer On every train All the children And all of the names And every handout In every town And every dog that ain't locked No one's around I sing trailer for sale Or rent Rooms to let 50 cents No cigarettes are but Two hours of pushing Broom, bison Eight bit, twelve Four bit, broom i man of means By no means King of the road Trailers for sale or rent Rooms to let fifty cents No phone, no pool in the
0: late 1990s, a BBC drama featured on TV one Sunday evening, Unseen by Me. I'm then a reporter for the press newspaper in Christchurch, arriving on Monday morning for another exhilarating week. But I'm taken aback as my immediate boss Jan seizes me in a voluptuous hug. We really didn't expect to see you, Roy. She's a hard-working, immensely likable person, wearing a worried, relieved look. I'm mystified. She explains how the BBC show portrayed the missing postman. It's me to a T, my other work colleagues confirm, peering sheepishly from behind their computer screens evidently the missing postman rides off to destinations unknown on his new bicycle i too have a new bicycle a very bright yellow and green rally mountain bike and i chatted often enough about ambitious bike journeys that even i suspect will never happen in my mid fifties i am in a mid-life crisis of sorts some might say a male menopause and looking for a new direction Perhaps I'm trying to compensate for something I've missed out on somewhere. Colleagues younger than I have already died, seemingly unfulfilled. I'm getting fitter, lighter and leaner on doctor's advice by walking four kilometres weekdays along Colombo Street to Cathedral Square, while these streets are in their prime. I also go tramping or occasionally climb mountains, which gives me the energy and ambition to set out on journeys more challenging than a walk to work. And now I have a new bicycle. After all the chat at the newspaper office, wondering what i would missed, I'll be sure not to miss the second episode of Sunday's screening of The Missing Postman. I'm eagerly awaiting it all week. Next Monday morning, I arrive at work, carrying under my arm a paper package, obviously a book. Give me a look, she demands. Jan loves books. Dutifully, I hand it to her. She slips the book from its wrapping, revealing its cover, The Missing Postman, by Mark Wallington. English? An ex-gardener, he's born in Swanage, the Dorset town once favoured in Enid Blyton's books of the famous five, set amid chalk cliffs, stone quarries, and boats bobbing at their moorings off the seaside resort. It has a similar impact on Mark Wallington, whose 1992 novel, later an award-winning screenplay, The Missing Postman, is a parody on the British Postal Service. In the television version, Clive Peacock plays the fictitious Postman of the Year of Dorset. He changes from dutiful, disenchanted civil servant to lead a life thrilling and energetic. It's a high-tech mail-sorting machine, does it? But for it, he may have retired, but not while a machine threatens to take over his duties. He unlocks local postboxes for the last time, then disappears down the road by bike to deliver those letters all over the British Isles. Clive Peacock, who plays the part of errant postman with all the panache of a Don Quixote of Her Majesty's Royal Mail, has even to deliver a letter to an address in Italy, sought by police. His once humdrum life is now fulfilling. He enjoys his days, and often nights of long-distance cycling, getting fitter as he goes. Let's not spoil the story by saying more, but I do confess to envying just a little those whose job cycling our suburbs announces their presence with a postie's whistle, as if to say, Look, there's a letter in the letterbox. For many around the world, cycling is virtually their vocation. Thousands of others wish it were theirs. At the time I'm working part-time as a motorman that's to drive electric motor-driven vehicles such as subway trains and streetcars. I drive Christchurch's heritage trams popular with tourists. I'm keen to escape the restraint of the rails, to experience life away from the city's din, I'll explore my surroundings by bicycle, glide unobtrusively across the landscape, by pedal power. The essence of cycle touring is to make no sound other than the whir of wheels, whether or not we equip our bikes with Shimona multi-gears or other contrivances. Our greatest reward comes of a sense of untrammeled freedom to go wherever the road may take us. I imagine the long-distance cyclist as a sort of high-tech swagman carrying all necessities for comfortable survival balanced on two wheels. It offers me new sensations, the faint sweetness in the raw tang of silage, the absolute silence of a seldom-travelled road the ease of detours through appealing landscapes and villages where motor-powered traffic is loath to leave the broad highway and and direct bypass. All it takes is the courage to dispense with dreary comfort and freewheel away where cycle tourists go. Many are middle-aged or older. Some husbands and wives get on extremely well with each other to tour on tandem cycles. I have a role model in New Zealander, Craig McLaughlin, who walked, the length of Japan, going the opposite way to Englishman Alan Booth, who accomplished similar twenty years before. My bicycle journeys belong to the new millennium, yet still use technology of a time two centuries ago. Far from being relegated to the past, bicycle's design basically changes a little as it's become ever more popular for leisure. As scientists monitor rising carbon emissions since the industrial age, they slam its effect on environment, human health and global temperatures. They extol the virtue of curbing contamination of our planet from burning carbon fuels. It seems almost overnight. Pedal power as a means to travel projects a progressive image. Burning calories rather than petroleum is the in thing. If only all this environmental fervour could translate to cyclists getting a better, safer deal in sharing highways with motor vehicles, lest we get too carried away with self-righteousness. Does anyone go adventure cycling solely to help the environment? We're far too selfish for that. It's time to pump a bit of air in the tyres, put out the cat, clip on the panniers, throw the bills out with the rubbish recycling. There's a worthy start." It's December 2005, I'm then in my early sixties. My thoughts hark back to earlier in my life when the kindly workmate we call Old Bill grins from ear to ear. Removing wrapping, spilling from the company's gift on his retirement at sixty years of age, Old Bill lays hands on his plush new easy chair it seems like a symbol of security aiding his long and loyal working life ease comfort government superannuation decades later down my own road to retirement i'll not envy old bill his easy chair in fact i'd not willingly exchange my uncompromising bicycle seat for easy chair as i recall my first long distance cycle trip in new zealand I begin on the Transalpine Express, taking the train from Christchurch to Greymouth. Along the way, Charlie Ogston and other old railway friends tell some great yarns about the west coast. Emerging from the Otira rail tunnel, I take in the ramshackle town, the rainforest, lakes and braided rivers under clear skies. I smile at the absurdity of embarking on this a long train ride to Greymouth. For the sake of almost at once setting off on the return journey by bike. It's good to get away from my part-time job as motorman on the city's heritage tramway, and nor'easterly gloom and drizzle that seem to bless Christchurch at Christmas. My bike, packed and ready to ride, is secure in the luggage van. A welcoming waft of brewing coffee trickles from the nearby buffet carriage. Relaxing, I tune my ears to Charlie's commentary to international travellers aboard. The Transalpine rates as one of the top six scenic rail journeys in the world. Charlie's much more than a tour guide. He's unashamedly a railway enthusiast, as well as a long-time rail employee, and one of only two people I know who wears a permanent smile. That might have been difficult the day Charlie and his wife a newly married couple lost her diamond ring there 50 kilometres west of Christchurch where Charlie is station-master at Darfield the largest town between the city and Arthur's Pass she is gardening when the ring glittering diamonds flies off her slender finger as she throws weeds over the fence the couple would return to Darfield from time to time to search in the horse paddock for the long lost ring For more than a quarter century after, Charlie thanks his lucky stars. It's not he who lost it. It's typical of Charlie how he blends historical facts with his own experiences, very sharp on the history of New Zealand's development of rail transport. Unloading my bicycle from the train, I do a quick circuit of the town as a check that everything's running sweetly, ready for the ride over the Southern Alps by road. I meet Charlie, who's spending his lunch break at a bike shop buying an inner tube for his own bicycle. He's aware of the benefits. It's astonishingly obvious I lack fitness. Hot under a blue sky, I'm buffeted by an annoying headwind as I head up Grey Valley towards the mountains. The Transalpine passes by me. Charlie's on his way home. As the train disappears up the line amid lush beach rainforest, I flick gears as peddling becomes easier. For a few moments I feel alone. The English novelist H. G. Wells wrote, After your first day's cycling, one dream is inevitable. A memory of motion lingers in the muscles of your legs, and round and round they seem to go late afternoon i round a corner only forty kilometers from Greymouth to see the stunning lake with year-round fishing for brown trout lake bruna the largest in westland has on one shore the close-knit community of moana where i'll stay my first night away before the day is done i put aside my bike for the pleasure of walking about the town tucked away in this rugged landscape i venture out on foot on a flimsy swing bridge across the Arnold River where it flows swiftly from the lake. Interrupting the silence occasionally is the plop of brown trout leaping to catch hapless insects. Doc's sign offers the lake's poetic Māori name, Kutuku Fakaoho, meaning the flapping of white heron wings. A classic yacht catches my attention i see a shower approaching spots of rain send me scurrying to shelter at the station as the shower passes over i wonder why this lake takes a european name from thomas brunner an english surveyor looking for land suitable for settlers how he survives five hundred and fifty days exploring westland potential is testimony to his companion's care Keha and Pikiwati, with their wives, show him how to climb up cliffs on Rata-Vine, where to get Weka, Paua, and sea-eggs to live on, the native plants with medicinal properties and food value. Despite painful difficulties, including Brunner's injured ankle and incessant rain that robs the journey of pleasure, they penetrate trackless bush between Nelson and Paringa in Westland. Finally getting back in, 1848. Lake Brunner bears his name, though Māori had been before. Brunner's report reveals the high quality coal deposits he located in the Grey River that come to found a new industry, but of farming potential he holds little promise. Two years later the first four ships of Christchurch's founding fathers reached New Zealand in 1850. It's likely that Brunner was the first European to see the big glaciers of Westland. But it falls to another explorer, Julius von Haast, to claim to be so, when some years later he names one of the glaciers after the Austro-Hungarian emperor, Franz (laughs) Joseph. My reveries shaken as a train thunders through the station. The last of sunlight spreads its golden splendour across Lake Brunner as the rain-clouds retreat in a blaze of crimson. Did Thomas Brunner see such a sunset too? How hungry they must have been for him to be possessed of the idea that to survive they must sacrifice his faithful companion, his dog, Rover. "'who tasted like a combination of mutton and pork,' he said. "'In the town of Jacksons I strike a sign. "'Otire Gorge, steep grade, not recommended for towing vehicles. "'I'm wondering if I'll soon want to add, and bicycles.' "'Leaning the bike against that sign, "'I stroll into the recently refurbished premises. "'Upon the bar stands a threatening-looking thing like a flamethrower apparently for dispensing Monteith's beer. I believe they once served possum pies here. Jackson's still retains an agreeable Wild West kind of atmosphere, complete with swinging saloon door, adjoining the bar, a pleasant café where the long-distance cyclist may enjoy the luxury of relaxing, no thinking to what lies ahead. In this case, one hell of a steep climb in the notorious Otira Gorge, There are many excuses to stop. I spot what looks like a lonely grave, behind the remnants of a boarding-house once serving as a Cobb & Co. coach-stop. An iron fence surrounds the gravestone of Natalie Evans, whose ashes were buried here 2002. That's as she wished, her then eighty-year-old husband assures me. He was the owner of the old accommodation house, and still lives nearby back in the saddle. I'm soon stopping again to photograph friendly calves that crane through the fence out of curiosity. We have a quiet munching chat. They pose so nicely for the camera, and I leave them with my unconvincing promise that I'll again attempt a vegetarian's life. The day's pleasant. No need to hurry." punctured rear tire from smashed beer-bottle glass littering the road, I walk my bike back to a shaded farm gate, where the flat top of a fence-post makes an ideal workbench. Parched and sunburnt, I arrive at Aoteera to a welcome by a local who hands me a glass of beer outside the rambling building of the hotel that's seen better days. Thirst is further stated with bottled water from the café refrigerator. Once a bustling railway town, Aoteera is hardly attractive these days. A cow and calf and other livestock wander almost deserted streets. The press predicts rain for the west coast, as its weather page has for the past week. The town would be history had Bill and Christine Henner not bought the old pub a few years ago. Along with the pub went 17 houses, a community hall, fire station, swimming pool, school and other assets. The Henners had inadvertently bought a town. We came down from Auckland to escape the rat race and retire. We love the peace and quiet, but retirement became a bit of a mystery. Bill says the Department of Conservation is keen to see it all go. Between rain showers, Christine is progressively painting the pub. She's also planning to display, to tell the story of Altira's past, the old photos and newspaper clippings. It's Cobb & Co. coach days through to the building of the railway. Little space remains on the inside walls. It's becoming a popular option for organised bicycle tours, just before my visit, Aoteera hit the news with a five-fold increase of land values and doubling of property values owing to capital improvements. Rates are on the rise, yet as one local observes There's been no noticeable improvement in Otera for more than twenty years. A distant train whistle gets me scurrying. If I were in town as the Transalpine arrives, I'd likely be offered a lift through the eight-kilometre tunnel to Arthur's Pass. And, with the first rumbles of thunder in the air, the offer might be difficult to refuse. Next day dawns calm and clear. Nothing is more exhilarating than being on the road early as the chills transformed to warmth. As the road heads higher, I look down upon a valley where, true to its name, the crooked river winds between steep banks, revealing railway lines clinging to the same contours. As watching trains go by is a lifelong passion for me. I won't want to miss the next train. And here it comes, a long coal train twisting alongside the curves of Crooked River. My tired eyes trace the narrow ribbon of twisting highway I've just painfully peddled, putting me close to the summit of Arthur's Pass. I glance back into depths of the Ōteire Gorge. At least the rain stopped. Water drips off me. I feel as bedraggled as the mountain lilies, beautiful petals being carried away in gushing rivulets. Ruffy and Kia, New Zealand's mountain parrot, rise with their familiar cry. My spirits rise with their call, confirming I'm not alone in the wild environment of the Southern Alps. Despite years as a self-confessed agnostic, I thank God for being here. Fading sounds of thunder echo around the mountains as the storm moves to vent its fury elsewhere. Drenched and downhill I go, anxious to find lodgings for the night, dry clothes, mercifully stowed in waterproof panniers, and a pint of Monteith Gripping the handlebar, I flick through the gears as the gradient quickens my descent, spokes shimmering in weak sunlight as they spin faster and faster, seemingly intent on overtaking the clouds still racing over the peaks of the main divide. We trust you'll join us for another edition of Roy Sinclair's book, Pedal Power. Historic Souvenirs is presented on Free FM 89.0, proudly supported by New Zealand On Air.